Women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. You gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants to hear your And welcome to She Roars, a podcast about change and the women who fuel it, before, during, and after their time here on the Princeton campus. My name is Margaret Koval, and my guest today is engineering professor Lynn Liu. Lynn is director of Princeton's Anlinger Center for Energy and the Environment. She's also a graduate alumna from 2001, and she's an absolute dynamo professionally and intellectually. Lynn has delivered more than 200 invited lectures and has published over 150 academic papers. She's a fellow of the American Physical Society and a young global leader of the World Economic Forum. She's also the recipient of numerous academic awards and honors, and in addition to leading the Anlinger Center, she runs a large and dynamic research group, and in her spare time, she has founded a company. So thank you, Lynn, very much for coming. Thanks for having me, Margaret. I want to start, I always like to start off by asking how you got to where you are. So what what made you interested in engineering in the first place? Well, um, it's uh, it's a story from from a long time ago. My dad worked for Shell Oil on mm-hmm. the business side of things, but he would always bring these technical posters home, and I was probably five or six then. Um, and he brought this poster with a distillation column on to, uh, on, on the poster, and. That um, has really left an impression on me because I'm looking at this poster. You're taking crude oil from the ground, and then you're putting it through the distillation column. And so the distillation column is a separation Mm -hmm. uh, 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 method. And so it separates things by their differences in the boiling temperatures. Mm -hmm. And so out comes useful products, all Mm -hmm. separated, kerosene, um, gasoline, bitumen, tar, Mm -hmm. you name it. Mm -hmm. And and so this always um, struck me as... um, and a, a, a tremendous engineering feat, and so that's that's inspired me to to go into engineering. That's really interesting because at five, I mean, it does also it says two things to me. It says early early experiences are hugely important, but it also says you were a special five year old. No, 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 I don't think so. But it was, it's you know, it's that impression that then you know it reinforces its, itself, right? And and so I knew I wanted to be an engineer, and and um, uh, I, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's it reinforces itself much. <laughs> yeah, and then and then and you were growing up in uh, well, you grew up around the world, but but mostly Malaysia, I think. Correct. Yeah, and then uh, you made your decision to come to university, and tell me why you chose to come to the United States. Um, I uh, went to Taipei American School. I graduated from there. Um, that was because my dad was transferred to to Taiwan for his last posting, um, and. At Taipei American School, being a Malaysian, uh, which is a Commonwealth country, um, I went through the International Baccalaureate Program. So that's a UK program. Um, so I was all set to go to Imperial College, had a scholarship. Um, Imperial College um, in London. Correct. And uh, was supposed to study chemical engineering and had cold feet at that moment. Um, and right at that time, um, a counselor from University of Pennsylvania was visiting Taipei American School and basically told me how flexible the curriculum was and how you don't have to decide on your major until you're a sophomore. Sophomore, and I was sold uh, essentially, uh-huh. and um, I was really attracted by the fact that you don't have to make a commitment to chemical engineering um, right out of high school when you don't really know what chemical engineering is. Yeah. I mean, I ended up majoring in chemical engineering anyway, yeah. but but I now know that was my decision, yeah. and it wasn't something made right out of 
high school. Yeah. Well, I'm also struck because in your current role as director of the Anlinger Center, it's an interdisciplinary um, uh, organization. And uh, I think that, at least I like to think, that the undergraduate education that you get um, in a liberal arts college like like Princeton as well as like, like um, Pennsylvania uh, gives you an appreciation for the range of issues that are involved in, in any engineering problem. Oh, absolutely. I think as an engineer, um, I want to make an impact. That's that's my my goal. And and so I think there it completely aligns with the mission of the Anlinger Center. Um, here, the particular impact that we're talking about is in the energy and environmental space. We're talking about decarbonization and how can we decarbonize our society and our economy. And so the technology that we develop feeds ultimately into this. There are individual pieces of technology, but everything counts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and what I'm struck by uh, is that the Anlinger Center is not just engineers. I mean, it is engineers, but it's also dealing in, in policy and um, and the social sciences, I wonder. Absolutely, because um, technology alone isn't going to cut it at the end of the day. And so you need to think about implementation. You need to think about adoption. And so at the Anlinger Center, in addition to scientists and engineers, uh, social science is an important component um, uh, and, and policy is an important component. So uh, within that context, we collaborate with the Wilson School. Um, we have a joint faculty member with the Wilson School, and uh, she is also a faculty member in psychology uh-huh. uh, that uh, is thinking about helping us think about how humans uh-huh. collectively and individually make decisions. So the Wilson School, for anybody that doesn't know, is the Woodrow Wilson School Correct. for Public Policy here mm-hmm. at Princeton. That's and, and they're very engaged also in issues of energy policy, right, and, right. and climate change policy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, fascinating. So how did it come to pass then after you left college that you ended up here at Princeton? Um, grad school. Um, mm-hmm. So I came immediately for grad school. And um, while I was applying for grad school, I only applied to a handful of places. And, and again, I if, if you haven't gotten this so far, I'm a very spontaneous. It's it, it sort of impressions mean a lot to me. And uh-huh. so it was at the visiting weekend, I spoke with um, who's now my uh, who was uh, my advisor and, and struck a chord and decided that this was the place for me and came here. And who was that? Uh, Rick Register, who's in the chemical engineering department. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Great. Well, then, well, welcome back. I guess that's a, a very late welcome. You've been back for quite a while. <laughs> that's now. right. You have a very active research group, and then you were invited or asked to be the director of the Enlinger Center. What, what was the appeal of taking that step in your career? Um, I think... Uh, Climate action is an important topic. Um, it's an urgent topic. Um, it's one that we all need to collectively address. Um, and to me, as an engineer, this was an opportunity for me to effect change. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I took the job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some of the change, I mean, we're going to talk about your own research and your own um, company in a little bit. But some of the change is systemic that the Anlinger Center is looking at, a systemic change. Um, you've been telling me uh, before we sat down here about a, a, a project called Rapid Switch. I wonder if you could describe what that is. Yeah, so rapid switch. Um, here, rapid re, uh, refers to the pace, and mm-hmm. switch refers to a transition from a carbon-intensive economy to a low-carbon economy. I mean, we've spent the better part of a century building up this carbon infrastructure, and so now how do we go from a, this ca- existing carbon infrastructure to a low-carbon economy? While there are models out there that suggest how we can decarbonize uh, based on this 2 degrees Celsius scenario, none of them really address the pace with which change can happen. Mm -hmm. So Rapid Switch is looking at the pace with which this transition can happen. What is realistic? Um, Are we overly optimistic when it comes to these models? What is reasonable? 
Uh, importantly, it's to address where the bottlenecks and where the hotspots are, mm-hmm. and then and then. By identifying these bottlenecks and hotspots, then we can figure out ways to overcome them or to implement uh, solutions and alternatives around mm-hmm. them. So I want to just um, the two degree scenario. If mm-hmm. you could explain what what that means, that's that's the 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 goal to limit um, global warming or, or to, to two degrees Celsius. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. And so so the two degree Celsius scenario is is basically to say that we need to. Uh, limit global uh, temperature rise below two degrees Celsius, um, and there are models out there that uses that and say and and uses that as a limit. So that says that you know by the end of the century, by the by the turn of the century, uh, we need to limit uh, global temperature rise to below two degrees Celsius, and then the models then uh, project or backcast in essence because we're. We're not at the turn of the century yet. Yeah. Uh, how things should look like, yeah. but it doesn't really address um, how realistic it is or the pace with which things can happen. Um, so, for example, some of the models call for premature um, turning off of coal-burning power plants in China. Yeah. But China just brought online 40 gigawatts of uh, coal-burning power plants, and these coal-burning power plants have an economic life of 50 to 60 years. Um, so, how do we think about prematurely turning off these coal-burning power plants? Who's responsible? For all of those stranded assets, to the amount of about four hundred billion dollars. I mean, four hundred billion has been invested in these plants that we're asking or we're envisioning should just be turned off, taken right. offline. Right. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, so how do we how do we address these problems? Mm-hmm. Um, you can look at India, um, and and I would I should say that Rapid Switch looks at India and China in particular because these are developing countries um, that are uh, that are uh, positioned to really move the needle on mm-hmm. on decarbonization, mm-hmm. and in China. Uh, in India, sorry, for example, um, um, these some of these models call for implementation of a lot of solar projects. And and if you look at uh, where these solar projects have to be and where the coal plants are now, mm-hmm. they're incommensurate. And mm-hmm. so there's going to be a lot of labor tension involved. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So socioeconomic problems that are going to come in. And so addressing that's going to be critical. Mm-hmm. So that's been identified at the broad brush, a bottleneck. Yeah. And now we're going to go in a deep dive to look at how we can address these problems regionally. That's yeah. why um, we have Rapid Switch India, Rapid Switch China. These are our partners. We believe that we need regional partners to be able to be successful at this. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Who are you working with in China and India? Are you working with academics? Are you working with the government there? Or are you working with who? who? So our fir- first partners are academics um, because these are the people who are going to do the analysis um, um, and NGOs as well. And then the idea is to then write a report and this report gets transmitted to the people who are making the decisions mm-hmm. or the people who are making the policy or the people who are implementing the regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, so in China is Tsinghua University and in India are several IITs. Mm-hmm. It sounds very daunting, but it's daunting here in the U.S. as well, right? And, Absolutely. And I, yeah. Um, I know that uh, Enlinger is also involved in a, in a U.S.-based mm-hmm. project. I forgot what you call it. I think it's the Infrastructure Bill Project. Correct. Can, can you tell me a little bit about that? So this is a campus-wide project. Uh, it's called the Infrastructure Bill Project, and it's really a scoping study to look at how much things are going to cost to decarbonize the U.S. economy. Um, so this is happening 
right now. Mm -hmm. And the idea is uh, uh, to scope out the cause for an infrastructure build, um, to look at the labor forces that are involved. Um, and it's supposed to be a nonpartisan project because it has something that appeals to everybody. Mm -hmm. It's an infrastructure project. It addresses climate action. Mm -hmm. um, it also looks at um, how realistic it is when we say we want to be 100% reliable, uh, re uh, reliant on, on solar and wind. Mm -hmm. um, and so how expensive are things? Mm -hmm. um, how do we scope things out? Um, and we are hoping to get this project done within the year or so um, yeah. um, and, and to transmit that information out. Well, that's a hugely important window right there that this coming year, obviously, we're gearing up towards another uh, election nationally. And also the the Green New Deal has has, has gained traction on, in right. Congress. So there's a lot of conversation about mm -hmm. green infrastructure or mm -hmm. infrastructure. Um, so I wonder how you, how you line up the um, infrastructure bill project that you're working on with the Green New Deal that's been recently released in, in Congress and will be voted on soon, I think. Yeah, so I think I think the timing's uh, great. Um, mm -hmm. So so it's it's important that we get we get things done immediately. Um, the Green New Deal has been uh, great in the sense that it's brought uh, conversations and discussion about climate change to the forefront. Yeah. Everybody's talking about it. I think that's the best thing about Green New Deal. Mm. That's not to say there aren't issues associated with the Green New Deal. I think um, there are issues and these issues would have to be resolved um, with time. Um, and I can give you a couple of examples. So yeah, in please. its first resolution, the Green New Deal called for 100% renewable energy. And with renewables, particularly referring to just solar and wind. So mm -hmm. no no nuclear, no, no large-scale hydro, presumably mm -hmm. for environmental reasons. And in my opinion, that's not... Um, uh, that's that's not reasonable. I think uh, we need to think about a diversity of technology solutions, um, and having a diversity provides the resilience and reliability of the grid. Yeah. Um, and indeed, in the second version of the resolution, um, that language has been softened, and so now um, it's open to all sorts of technologies, and so we'll see what happens. Yeah. So that's just one problem, yeah. and, and the cost is another problem, and the timeline, right? Yeah. So, so I think... Um, Things have to be parsed out uh, over time, uh, but nonetheless, I think it's great that everybody's talking about climate change, um, and and uh, people are very aware yeah. of the consequences of climate change. Yeah, and 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 you know, not to sound too opportunistic, but also the opportunities involved, presumably, because the I think a great appeal of the infrastructure element is is that. Um, uh, private industry can jump in and and get involved in the solution and get involved in setting up new companies and get involved in job creation and all of these things that are um, incredibly important um, on every level. That's right, and that's why I see the Anling uh, another role that uh, the Anlinger Center plays is is a role of convening. Um, mm -hmm. I think bringing people together to have these kinds of conversations is critically important. Mm -hmm. In September, we had a climate action conference where about 300 people were in the audience, and these are who I would call our stakeholders. They could mm -hmm. be from the community uh, because they care about climate change. They care about their future. They care about their kids' future. They care about their grandchildren's future, right? Mm -hmm. It could be businesses. It could be NGOs. It could be government. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, academia um, mm -hmm. and students uh, mm -hmm. who are our future leaders in this space. Um, and so we were able to bring 300 people together to talk about, we talked about nuclear. Uh, we talked about innovation. Um, uh, in this space um, and uh, uh, decarbonization um, uh, of the grid uh, power sector uh, because uh, if you look at these models the power sector especially has to decarbonize very 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 quickly yeah. um, and so those are important questions that need to be addressed electrification 
That's really interesting. Um, You've said it's not reasonable to leave nuclear off the table. I wonder if you can, can say what you mean by that. We have to deal with the waste. We have to responsibly and safely deal with the waste. But nuclear does not emit carbon. And so I think we need to figure out where our priorities are. And we need to weigh the probabilities um, of, um, of, of, uh, of all the consequences uh, and to think about all the consequences before we rule out any energy technology. So effectively, um, you're saying climate change is more dangerous than, than, than the worries people might have about nuclear power. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Before you took your current job, um, you set up a program here on campus called eFiliates. Mm-hmm. How did that come about, and what were the goals? So eFiliates is a corporate affiliates program um, that's run by the Anlinger Center. So I was the associate director for external partnerships before becoming the director. Um, there, it was important for me to get practitioners and businesses Uh, to be part of the conversation. That's why uh, we set up this program. Um, The goal of this program is threefold. One is to uh, um, facilitate collaboration between practitioners and and, uh, the academia. Um, That's important because we frequently are siloed in thinking about developing our technology. And uh, practitioners bring a very different perspective. They bring a different level of urgency to the problem. And so, and they think about scale up and safety and uh, whether it's economically viable So that's a very important perspective Mm -hmm. that we would otherwise be missing. The second goal is to complete this triangle of teacher-student-practitioner. I think we teach our students very effectively here, but we're limited by our own experiences. And speaking for myself, I went to grad school, Mm -hmm. and then I spent a year at Bell Labs as a postdoc, and then I became a professor. And Mm -hmm. so practitioners bring, again, this different perspective. And not all our students go to become professor. They they go into industry. Mm -hmm. And so it's important for them to see what it's like. And then the third goal would be to translate what we develop here to industry, Mm -hmm. uh, to the marketplace. And so um, working with industry and businesses helps us do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, And also, of course, you're picking up some of the business acumen, some of the business thinking, I think. I mean, it's coming the other direction as well, right? Yes, it goes both ways. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, The startups at uh, at Anlinger, yeah, I'm super proud of them. So, I mean, I think uh, what's exciting about the Anlinger Center is uh, that we're a very mission-oriented academic unit. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in addition to thinking about academic rigor, in addition to thinking about developing fundamental knowledge, um, is is the mission of developing solutions. And so it's by no accident that our faculty members are spinning off companies. Um, so we spoke about Anluca Technologies. Um, this is uh, my startup uh, working on self-powered smart windows. But there are numerous startup companies uh, from uh, from f- that have spun off uh, uh, research that had been done at the Anlinger Center. So Hearth Labs, a Forrest Megger's startup company, develops sensors mm-hmm. uh, to look at um, uh, energy efficiency within buildings. Um, there are several battery companies. Um, there's actually one um, uh, that undergraduates have actually started called Flux Marine, um, mm-hmm. and that's developing electric motors for marine vehicles. Um, and uh, we've provided some funding to help them get started. That's incredible. I'd like to go back to your company, if I can. Sure. Uh, could you tell me uh, what it does and uh, how it came about? Sure. So uh, And Luca Technologies is the company, and so it develops uh, self-powered smart windows. 
there are such things as electrically dimmable windows out there. And um, you dim these windows by flipping a switch. And so you require voltage, basically, or electricity. Um, you want to dim these windows because then you can cut down on how much light and heat comes into the building. And by doing so, you can cut down on air conditioner use, heater use, right. or lighting use. Sure. Um, and so it's an energy efficiency spin. But you can only think about incorporating these electrically dimmable windows today at least in new builds because it requires a lot of wiring mm -hmm. and you need to wire it to the mainframe of the building and then you need to wire that then to the grid. So you can't think about it in retrofit buildings. Um, so what we've developed is a transparent solar cell that sits right on top of this electrically dimmable film. Mm -hmm. And so you create a self-powered smart window unit or an insert that you can pop into window. Huh. And this particularly addresses retrofit markets. Right. So it all stands alone. It's one It's all standalone. So the idea, the vision is that you measure your window and you tell us the measurements of your window and we would send you this insert that you can pop into uh, your window pane and it helps you regulate how much heat and light comes into the building so you can use less of your air conditioner and your heater yeah. and your lighting. So just so people don't start inundating you with requests, you're, you're, you haven't got a product for market quite yet, is that right? No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. So this is still very early in its stages. Um, so we have a prototype um, and uh, we're continuing to, to work on scale up. And um, one of the major issues that we're tackling right now is um, lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, we're talking about windows here. So uh, the lifetime needs to be 10 to 15 years. And sure. the initial tests are promising, but we're doing accelerated testing to make sure that we have the right lifetimes before pushing out a product. Yeah. And, and uh, j just to be clear, this is a really big problem or a really big source of of, of carbon in the economy, isn't it? Heating buildings, office buildings, and factories and homes. It's yeah. it's a piece, um, and it, so I think of these as as you know part slices of a pie, and mm -hmm. so it's certainly a slice of a pie. And and so just to give you some numbers, forty percent of of electricity goes to uh, heating, cooling, uh, 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 and uh, lighting. Uh, residential and commercial right. buildings. And that uh, amounts to 30% carbon emissions in the U.S. 30% um, of the U.S. carbon emissions. That's oh, my right. goodness. So it is a very, it, it's, as you say, a slice, but it's a big slice. It is a big slice. A third. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, and, and I think um, it's... Um, I'm particularly excited about this technology because um, it addresses retrofit markets. And um, there are numbers out there that says that the buildings are in use in 2050 half of them have already been built. And so um, if you want to make these buildings more energy efficient, you have to think about retrofit. Yeah, and so, I mean, this comes back to almost where we started the conversation when you were talking about the rapid switch. That's right. If we want to do it in the next 20, 50 years, um, we've got to work with the infrastructure and the buildings that we've already That's right. Got. That's right. I mean, the decisions we make today, the decisions we made yesterday, affect what our future looks like. I'm also interested, I, I, I read somewhere about a project uh, working on cement. Um, mm -hmm. I wonder. Yeah, so Claire White is uh, the joint faculty between us and um, and civil and environmental engineering. Mm -hmm. And so she works on sustainable cement. So I don't know whether you know, so this is a, um, a, a scary fact, right? For every ton of cement you produce, you pr produce a ton of carbon dioxide. I did not know that. Um, and, and cement next to water is the most used material. And so being able to um, create cements that either produce less carbon dioxide or that can incorporate carbon dioxide in its pr pr 
production process uh, would greatly reduce carbon emissions. Um, so she's working on alternative chemistries that allow you to capture s- carbon dioxide and sequester carbon dioxide within uh, these new cement chemistries. So, you know, just hearing two or three of these these sorts of potential technologies that I hadn't heard of before, driving towards a, a, um, a zero carbon economy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can we get there through these piecemeal, through th- these technologies um, added up? I, I was going to say alone, but I mean, in, in, you know, as we multiply them and add them up, is this going to be enough? Yes, but I think I think that's that's key in what you just said. I think you need all these technologies um, still maintaining, you know, a portfolio of nuclear fleets, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. or large scale hydros, and then even burning gas, uh, and and uh, that's going to be there for for some time because we're thinking about transportation as well, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, sequestering carbon dioxide and uh, storing carbon dioxide is going to have to be part of that equation. So mm-hmm. it's it's sort of a all hands on deck from a technology perspective, right? Um, yeah. all, all these are going to be important. With that, I think I could give you one last question and maybe ask you what the future of the Anlinger Center is going to be in the next five years. Where do you think the Anlinger Center is going to be driving? Um, I think this is a critically exciting time for the Anlinger Center. Uh, we've been focused on building up the Anlinger Center. Now we have 10 joint faculties, uh, each experts in what they do. Um, we're looking for uh, experts in energy systems now so that we can bring all these together. By energy systems, I mean thinking about energy holistically. So thinking about, for example, solar and wind penetration into the grid, you need somebody who has sort of this uh, macro uh, view to be able to think about integrating different technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, we have experts in solar. Um, we have experts um, in, in cements, um, in building energy efficiency. And now it's the integration part. And so um, I think with, with energy, energy systems is going to be increasingly um, on the radar. And of course, there's this rapid switch project uh, that that you had referred to earlier on. It's looking at bottlenecks, um, mm-hmm. addressing the bottlenecks that hinder decarbonization would be critically important. And as soon as we can identify what these are, then we can think about solutions or implementation of solutions that can address these bottlenecks. Are you confident we have the time? Um, we're always racing against the time. And so I think we need to do the best we can. It's an all-hands-on-deck moment. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Very much uh, appreciated. Thank you, Lynn. And I want to say also thank you to our audio engineer, Dan Kearns, and to our producer, Danielle Alio. And I hope our listeners will come back very soon to hear more interviews with the change-making women of Princeton University. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.